Good evening, good to see you tonight. Uh, glad that we can be back again together tonight. I want to uh, especially make sure that we are thankful that the college and young adults uh, came back and uh, had a great uh, trip this weekend for their retreat and glad to see you guys back. Hope that you guys had a good time and grew closer together and closer to God. Uh, we're in Daniel chapter 7 tonight. Daniel chapter 7, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Daniel and trying to see what we can learn from this, uh, this great book. And as I mentioned the last couple weeks, we have uh, now made it to the more difficult part of the book of Daniel, Daniel's uh, chapters 7 through 12. So I uh, want to just kind of think about that a little bit before we actually get into Daniel 7 tonight and see uh, how much we can get into Daniel 7. We'll try and cover the whole chapter. Uh, it's actually a fairly long chapter, uh, but um, we'll, we'll see how much we get through it. Uh, so Daniel chapters 7 through 12, I described it this way last week, uh, that some of us are familiar especially with uh, recent uh, superhero movies or that kind of things, whether it's in the, the Marvel universe or in the DC Comics universe. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, sorry. Uh, but in those universes, comic books from the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, they've started making movies about them now, if you're unaware of that. Uh, and it's a big deal. People making a lot of money doing that sort of thing. Uh, and one of the things that they do is at the end of the movies, they'll tell the story of Captain America or Spider-Man or whoever else, Batman, uh, whoever else it might be. And at the end of the, the movie, the, the movie itself, the main story will be over with. And you'll have a closing and all that kind of thing. Maybe you'll have a cliffhanger, something like that. And then as the credits begin to roll of the people who filmed it and the writers and the producers and, you know, the special effects artists and all that kind of stuff, sometime at some point during that, whether it's at the very beginning of that, somewhere in the middle, at the end, or all three of those, sometimes there's an extra scene. And sometimes it seems like that scene has absolutely nothing to do with anything. And very few times it doesn't have much to do with anything. But most of the time it's setting up the next movie. It's setting up the, the next superhero. It's setting up the, the next story that's going to be told in this long line of stories. There are, I don't know how many, I think Marvel is the one that has the most movies like this. I don't know, there's 20, 30 movies in the Mar- Marvel Cinematic Universe at this point. So at the end of each one of those, there's these post-credit scene or these mid-credit scene or something like that. In some ways, not a perfect analogy, but in some ways, Daniel's chapters 7 through 12 are the post-credit scene to the narrative of Daniel 1 through 6. The story of Daniel at this point is really over, okay? We're even going to go back in time. In Daniel chapter 7, when he receives this vision, would really be between Daniel's chapter 4 and 5 chronologically. Uh, he, he received this vision after Daniel chapter 4, before Daniel chapter 5, and the events that take place there. But the, the, the timing of it in these chapters really isn't the point of what's going on here. Okay, we talked about in Daniel chapter 5 where we talked about is it Cyrus or is it Darius and who's this guy and the history of it all. And that was important during the narrative part of Daniel. Uh, And they'll still mention some kings in Daniel 7 through 12, but they're not, uh, the timing of it or when he received the visions is not as important necessarily as the visions themselves. Okay, Uh, and you'll see hopefully what I'm talking about uh, as we go forward. Uh, Another thing to think about uh, is Daniel 7 through 12 is what we would call... uh, butcher this because it's a word I don't say very much, apocalyptic, there you go, apocalyptic uh, literature, okay? Uh, What is apocalyptic literature? It is uh, literature that gives us a vision, especially uh, biblical literature, uh, that gives us a vision of the future that generates hope in the present, okay? A vision that generates um, a vision of the future 
that gives us hope in the present. You read about this in the latter, latter part of the book of Daniel. The book of Revelation has a good bit of this. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and, and Zechariah also have apocalyptic literature, okay? Uh, what, we, what can we know about this, though? Because sometimes when we think about uh, certainly the book of Revelation, this part of the book of Daniel, if I could teach Daniel 1 through 6, I could do that very easily over and over and over again. Daniel 7 through 12 is a little bit intimidating because it's not as straightforward. It's a little bit more difficult to wrap our minds around what is this about, okay? And you'll see in a minute that we're not the only ones who struggled with what are these visions about okay um but but is there something that we can learn from it is there a reason for us to to look at these things listen to what romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says uh paul says for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scripture we might have hope that means daniel chapter 7 through 12 was written for our instruction so that we could have perseverance and hope There is a purpose that we can get. There is some benefit that we can get even from this more difficult section of Scripture. Of course, you know 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, that all Scripture is inspired by God. It makes us wise for salvation in Christ. It teaches us about righteousness and equips us for every good work. And that's all Scripture, not just easy Scripture, right? It's, it's John 3.16, but it's also Daniel 7-12. through 12. It's also the book of Revelation. Not all of it is as easy to understand, but all of it is profitable to help us to be equipped for every good work. So there is reason uh, to do this. Let's talk briefly about before, and then we're going to get into the book. Uh, three guidelines that I'm going to follow. Three guidelines that I would encourage you to follow for studying uh, apocalyptic literature. If you're looking at the book of Revelation, if you're looking at these chapters in Daniel, or whatever else you might be looking at in the Bible uh, that seems to be thinking about visions of the future. Uh, Remember, they're supposed to be generating hope in the present. Here's three things that I'm going to think about. We cannot force, okay, literalness. We cannot force literalness. Uh, I love this, this idea. Again, I, I'm using the book. I've told you guys this already, but it's called uh, The Derision of Heaven uh, by Michael Whitworth uh, on the book of Daniel. And so I got this, lots of these ideas from that book. If you want to read it, I think you'd benefit from it. Um, so don't force literalness. And then he said it this way. Uh, apocalyptic literature is accurate, but it is not precise. It's accurate, but it's not precise. Okay, and that's true. Okay, it's, it, we don't have, we're not given all the details, all the names, all the dates, all the when, where, or how, but it is accurate, it's just not precise. Uh, we get the basic point, but not all the details. So don't force literalists. Number two, uh, don't be dogmatic. All right, that's an important thing in all things, but especially when it comes to apocalyptic literature, don't be dogmatic. Some things in the Bible, some things about our faith can be known with absolute certainty. And on those things, we should stand firm and stand strong. Okay, things that the Bible is clear about, the way that we uh, should, should live our lives, the way that we come to salvation, the importance of baptism, the importance of uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the importance of the church, the importance of so many things that, that the Bible is very clear about, we should stand firm on those things. But this type of literature, these sections of Scripture, do not always fit into a nice, neat box that helps us to make perfect sense of them. There are some things that we'll talk about over these next however many weeks it takes us to get through these chapters that we just don't know. We don't know the answers to them. And so for us to arrogantly say, I know this is what this means, is to be arrogant. And God is opposed to the proud. So don't be dogmatic. And this, here's it is. Here it is. Not even Daniel. Renowned dream interpreter. Not even Daniel could make sense of what he saw on his own. We must approach these sections of Scripture 
with intense humility. If Daniel did not know, if Daniel was concerned, and we'll see in this chapter and certainly in chapters to come, not only does he not know, he is confused and he is concerned. He's bothered by the fact that he can't figure out what these visions are about. If he cannot figure it out, you're probably not going to either. Not with absolute certainty. So don't be dogmatic about it thinking that you can't absolutely know what it means when Daniel himself couldn't. Even when an angel comes and talks to him about it, he's still confused. We'll see that tonight. And then uh, number three, and this, of course, is, again, just general wisdom. Uh, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss the forest for the trees, okay? What's the book of Daniel about? What's the book of Daniel about? The book of Daniel is not about the details of visions that we aren't given. We're not given the details of what they mean and therefore likely cannot nail down perfectly. That's not what the book of Daniel is about. Let me review with you really quickly what the, Daniel, what the, what the book, book of Daniel is about. The book of Daniel is about. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, God is in control even in Babylonian captivity. Daniel chapter 2, God is able to provide when lives are on the line. Daniel chapter 3, what God is there who can deliver you from our God? Shananai, Mishael, and Azariah would say. Daniel chapter 4, the most powerful man, the most powerful must recognize God's power. Daniel chapter 5, God gives power and takes it away. Daniel chapter 6, God can deliver his people from the powerful. Daniel chapter 7 through 12. What is Daniel 7 through 12 about? Here's what this is about, no matter what we talk about the next few weeks. No matter what comes, God is in control and will care for and deliver his people in the end. I would say, and I'm pretty much to the point where I can confidently assert this. I would say the reason we know about Daniel and the Babylonian captivity, the reason we know about in Daniel chapter 1, him making that stand to not defile himself with the king's food. The reason we're told the, told the story in Daniel chapter 2 about the king's dream and the wise men's failure to interpret it and God's uh, provision to, to let Daniel know what the, the dream means. In Daniel chapter 3 where we hear about the fiery furnace. In Daniel chapter 4 and 5 where we hear about these, these couple different kings. In Daniel chapter 6 where we hear about the lion's den. I would say, I, I, think, I think I can almost... I think I can almost absolutely say this, that the reason we have the narrative of Daniel is so that when we get to Daniel 7 through 12, we can say, God's in control. I don't know what Daniel 7 through 12 always means. I don't know the details. Daniel didn't know the details. I think the reason we have the story of Daniel is so that when we get to the prophecy of Daniel, we can have confidence that God is in control no matter what comes. And that's Daniel chapter 7 through 12. All right, we'll wrap it up right there. All right, let's look a little bit at uh, Daniel 7 and see uh, some, some, some details uh, about what's going on. All right, Daniel chapter 7. Let's read verses 1 through 3. One through three. All right, so remember at the end of uh, Daniel chapter 6, it was Daniel and the lions then and Cyrus and Darius. It was the Medo-Persians had come to power, okay? Well, in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1, uh, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Well, he, he was back in Daniel chapter 4 and 5, okay? So we're going back a number of years. This is 10 years before the fall of Babylon. This vision Daniel received between the events of Daniel chapter 4 and 5. So it's not chronological anymore at this point the narrative is over now he's just saying hey i want to also tell you about these visions i had at these various times okay Uh, so in the first year of belshazzar king of babylon daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay on his bed then he wrote the dream down and state and said the following summary of the matter Daniel answered and said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. All right, so we have these 
four beasts. And this is the, um, the main portion of the dream here is these four beasts that he sees. You'll remember uh, Daniel chapter 2, uh, the king has a dream, right? And he has a dream of the, uh, the statue, and it basically has four different sections, right? It has the head of gold, and it says silver, then it has uh, clay mixed with, uh, with iron and steel, and then the bottom of it is the, uh, the most uh, weakest, but also in some ways the strongest. So diff- four different sections of the statue. We have four different beasts here. There will be some parallels, some connections between uh, Daniel 7 and even further visions uh, in Daniel chapter 2. So he has a, a dream of these four uh, different beasts, okay? Um, you can read the descriptions there if you want to. I'm going to briefly, briefly go over them with you as we think about them. Uh, so the first one is uh, a lion with eagle's wings, okay? So he sees these four different beasts. They're rising up out of the sea, and the first one is a lion with eagle's wings. Now, I'm going to tell you tonight what most people who have studied this far more than I have, okay? I, I readily admit that. People who have studied this far more than I have uh, and scholars on the Bible for the, for the longest time, this has been the most, uh, this is what most people have said these four beasts probably um, represent, okay? Uh, there are certainly some other scholars that would disagree, uh, and some people recently have tried to, to change some of this. I think I've said this already, but some of the reason that people are changing this is because of their uh, particular um, doctrine or, or dogma or the things that they think about. Again, I think, I think I mentioned this early on, especially in Daniel chapter 2, um, that people who would believe in uh, coming Antichrist, a, a physical representation of Antichrist, someone, people who would believe in the thousand-year reign, someone who, people who would be uh, premillennialist, uh, they are changing what people have believed for a long time these four uh, beasts represents, the four kingdoms that are represented by these four beasts, uh, because uh, the last one being Rome no longer fits in their timeline, Okay. Uh, they believe that in the, the fourth kingdom is when uh, these, this Antichrist and the thousand-year reign and all those types of things, things that, that I don't believe that the Bible teaches. Uh, so they are changing. Uh, they're trying to stretch out the timeline a little bit further uh, to meet their doctrine rather than simply uh, seeing what the, the Bible says and, and believing what most people have believed for the longest time. So um, that's important to note. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 28, let's, 38, let's flip back there really quickly. Daniel 2, 38. Daniel chapter 2, verse 38. This is, again, the dream uh, that the king has. And let's see what it says in Daniel 2, verse 38. Talking about, this is when Daniel is interpreting the dream. And it says, And wherever the sons of men inhabit, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has made you rule with power over them. You are the head of gold. Okay, so in Daniel chapter 2, God, through Daniel or Daniel by God, identifies the head of gold as Nebuchadnezzar, identifies the head of gold as Babylon, okay? Uh, In the book of Daniel, there are these visions, and we have proof and evidence to suggest who the next one is, but this is the only time that God specifically says, you are this. It's the only time we, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the head of gold is absolutely Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, okay? And the only reason we know that for sure is because God tells us it for sure. Okay, everything after that, there's evidence, there's proof, there's reasons. uh, But the only one I can absolutely say that I know without any doubt at all is that the head of gold and the statue in Daniel chapter 2 was Nebuchadnezzar was Babylon because God said that it was. Okay, so in Daniel chapter 7, when we think about these four beasts, I'm going to tell you the evidence, some of the evidence, a very brief synopsis of some of the evidence of what what kingdoms each of these uh, beasts would represent. 
Uh, but the, the truth is, the Bible does not tell us explicitly which is what. Okay, so we, we need to be aware of that. All right, so the first beast, uh, back to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 4, uh, is a lion uh, with eagle's wings. Okay, most people believe in, in that this is Babylon, uh, represented by Babylon. Again, uh, this, this vision was received during the first year of King Belshazzar. Uh, during the king, kingdom of Babylon, the, the Babylonians have not fell, fallen yet, uh, so they believe that this is Babylon. What, what evidence do they have for that? Well, some physical evidence outside of anything biblical is that archaeologists have found numerous statues of winged lions in the ruins of Babylon. It seems to have been a, a, a reasonable and a recognizable symbol of the kingdom of Babylon that they used throughout their kingdom to represent richness and power and glory and might. Okay, uh, so this, this, lot, this winged lion would have been something that Babylon would have recognized. Also in, in the Bible, uh, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar himself are described as both a lion and an eagle. Uh, you can read about that in Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Habakkuk. Uh, this would have meant something to those who lived in Babylon. Probably, here's, here's what probably would have happened. When Daniel saw the winged lion, he would have said, hey, I've seen one of those things before. Now today, when's the last time you saw a winged lion? Certainly never in real life, I understand that. But even a statue, when's the last time you've seen something like that? That's not common decor in our world today, right? But in Babylon, that was common decor, okay? There would be winged lions all around Babylon. So when Daniel saw it, he probably thought, hey, I've seen that before. I know what that looks like. That's not unrecognizable to me. I understand that, okay? It also talks about that this... uh, this, this uh, winged lion has the mind of a man. Uh, that may uh, remind us of Daniel chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar's mind is, is turned into an animal's mind and then he comes back to himself. Uh, an animal has a, man, a, a man's mind. Uh, this man had a lion's mind for a while, so there's a connection there. Uh, and then it also says in, in, about this, uh, this winged lion that his wings are plucked. Okay, well, what would happen when, uh, when a bird's wings are plucked? What happens? Well, it loses or its, uh, its ability to fly is greatly diminished, right? Well, this is in the reign of Belshazzar of Babylon, 10 years before the fall, and Belshazzar is the king or the ruler of Babylon when Babylon falls. So there's some connections. There's some, some reasonableness for us to assume or to think uh, that this is representative of, of Babylon, okay? Uh, in the second one, in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 5, it says it's a bear, and it says, that, here's the description, a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. You got any idea what that is? I mean, that's just, that's just random, right? A bear raised up on one side uh, with three ribs in his mouth, okay? Uh, what, what does it mean that he's raised up on one side? Does that mean one of his legs is lifted like he's running? Does that mean he's leaning over? I, I don't know exactly what it would mean. Daniel saw it, and he tried to describe it as best he could. Um, what we think about with this, and again, what most scholars have believed for a long time, and even what most scholars continue to believe today, uh, lions, if lions are seen as the most powerful beast in Scripture, if we read about and think about and there's descriptions and analogies about the, the might of lions, the next animal that's the, the next greatest or the next mightiest would be bears within Scripture. Uh, so perhaps it's the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, perhaps, and this is, again, stuff from the, the book that I've read on this, uh, so, you know, read it yourself, take it and leave it, and, and uh, you know, figure out, do some study on this yourself if you want to uh, dive deeper into these things. Uh, but what about raised up on one side? Well, you think about the, the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, well, the Medes were greater than the Persians. They were one empire, but in some ways they, they brought uh, separate cultures into this one empire. They were a united kingdom that at one point were not united, and the Medes were stronger or mightier than the Persians. So it was a little unbalanced, like an animal raised up on one side. 
perhaps. Is that a stretch? It might be, but it's a vision. All of this is a little bit of a stretch for us to try and figure out what this is. What about the three ribs? Uh, another reason that maybe it's the Medo-Persians. Uh, Cyrus, who is the leader once this, this kingdom comes together, uh, and Cyrus, who is the king again, who takes over uh, um, Israel and, and, and takes over uh, Babylon, excuse me. Uh, Cyrus uh, conquered three kingdoms to form the empire before uh, Babylon and later Egypt. So the Cyrus, as he becomes king, he unites and takes over three kingdoms. Or, or may, maybe it's just generally this desire uh, for more. Look at verse 5. It says again, And behold, another beast, a second one, in the likeness of a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth, between its teeth, and thus... Uh, they said to it, arise, devour much, and eat. So maybe it's just this, this idea of the three ribs. is this, this constant idea of expansion and wanting more and more. The Medes and the Persians had a, a vast empire, and they would continually take over, take over, take over. And remember that when they take over uh, Babylon, uh, they take over all of Babylon and, and much of the land. So maybe it's just this great desire uh, for more in general. All right, the third animal, uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6, is described as a leopard uh, with four wings and four heads. A leopard with four wings and four heads. Now, most people, almost universally, uh, attribute this to Alexander the Great. Okay? And here's the reasoning for that. It's a leopard uh, with four wings and four heads. Oh, Alexander the Great, not sure how much you know about him. You've probably heard his name before. Uh, a tremendous general. Uh, and his, his army, his empire, not only did it spread far and wide, but also spread very quickly. Okay, it, was, it took over things very, very quickly, much quicker than previous uh, empires, much quicker than empires that came afterwards. So it was a leopard, a winged leopard, and also it has uh, four heads. Uh, again, it spread quickly, and at the end of his life, when Alexander the Great died, uh, his empire was divided between his four generals. All right? Is that just a coincidence? I can't tell you for sure. Okay, but there's some there's some evidence that 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 there seems to be a connection here that certainly Alexander the Great and his empire would have uh, run rampant and run quickly over the known world and at the end of his life uh, upon his death uh, his his kingdom was divided uh, between his four generals the four heads you would think and look about Uh, all right Daniel chapter seven and verse eight Uh, we have the fourth kingdom and here's how it's described it's terrifying and extraordinarily strong. It's different from all the beasts before it. All right, so you think about the the lion, the winged lion. You think about uh, the bear with the ribs in its mouth. You think about uh, the winged leopard and how fast it is and and with four heads. And this one is terrifying. Those were not described this way, but this one is described as terrifying. This one's described as extraordinarily strong, different from all the beasts before it. Uh, It has uh, ten ten horns uh, on its head. And then it says that an eleventh horn, which is smaller than all of the rest, displaced three of the original horns. And this one little horn has eyes of a man and mouth speaking great boasts. All right. Who wants to explain that one? All right. Nobody wants to, you know, nobody's going to sign up to try and explain that, right? Uh, this This is some, this is different than the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Right? The Sermon on the Mount is just a little bit more practical uh, than Daniel chapter 7. So, but what, but what, can we, what can we appreciate about this, okay? Uh, let's read verses 9 through 14. Verses 9 through 14. 
It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was ablaze with fire. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river was flowing. Uh, a, fire, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were open. So if we look at just those couple of verses, there's, there's some of that that sounds a lot like uh, Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 1 through 3, we have the, the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. In chapter 4, uh, John is described as going up to a scene in heaven. And in chapter 5, it's the, it's the throne room of heaven. Uh, but it's a little bit different. It's a little, a little prettier in, in Revelation, okay? There's a crystal sea. There's an, an emerald rainbow. Uh, this one, there's a, there's a lake of fire, a river of fire. The, the flame is like fire. Its wheels are like fire. This is, this is a little different than the picture that we see in, in Revelation. In Revelation, there are also myriads and myriads of angels, kind of like there are here. Um, it talks about the ancient of days. In Psalm 90 and verse 2 and 93 and verse 2, uh, the ancient of days seems to be talking certainly about God. Uh, the idea of ancient of days is he's everlasting. Uh, that's what the, the passages in Psalm says. You are from everlasting. Uh, the ancient of days, that he doesn't have any age to him. He's just always been here. The glory, the might, the, the agelessness. Uh, if you will, of God. Look at verse 11. Then I kept looking uh, because of the sound of the great and boastful words which the horn was speaking. Okay, so now he's saying, okay, this great and mighty and terrifying and awesome and fearsome beast uh, that they got the ten horns, then the 11th little horn comes up and it's got the eyes of a man and the mouth of a man and it's speaking great boasts. Okay, it's arrogantly saying things about itself. Okay, it's speaking great boasts. And he says in verse 11, I kept looking. I'm still, I'm still seeing some things here because of the sound of the great and boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, uh, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. Okay. What's that talking about? All right, well, what, what can we learn from that? Again, it talks about this great and mighty beast unlike any of the beasts before it. It's terrible, it's terrifying, it's, it's mighty, all of these things, okay? It says that it, uh, it basically uh, devours and crushed and tramples down everything that came before it. It takes over uh, a vast part of the world, all those types of things, great and mighty things. It's got these horns, but it really, it really narrows down and focuses in on that one little horn, doesn't it? That's what the vision talks about. And he talks about and focuses on, he says, I'm still looking, I'm still, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking up into this, this scene of a, of a throne room of the ancient of days. And this, it's kind of a terrifying scene too with this river of fire and flame and all these types of things. And then, but, I, but I can't take my eyes away, even though I'm looking at this, this ancient of days with white hair and a white beard and he's on a, flame, a, a throne of fire. And I mean, it's, that's an amazing enough thing. But he says, but I can't get away from this little annoying horn. They just won't shut up, right? And he keeps speaking arrogant things. And then almost very unceremoniously, what happens? In verse number 11, I kept looking until the beast was killed and the body was thrown into the river of fire. Very, I mean, it sounds like, man, this is a big deal. I mean, you, know, you think about that first kingdom, the, the winged lion. That's, that's awesome. That's an awesome picture. That's an awesome visual. Think about this, this mighty bear with ribs in its mouth, and it's just devouring those things. You think about the, the leopard with the wings and the four heads, and that, that's an awesome beast. And then this, this fourth one is even greater and, and mightier and more terrifying than all the rest of them before it. And then the Ancient of Days kills it. 
defeats it, wipes it out and throws it through the fire. And we see similar language again in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19 and 20, and also in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 5, this idea of this, of, of God's enemies seemingly just very easily when God decides to act. Now, God may be waiting, and God may be waiting longer than we want to, and again, that sounds like the, the book of Revelation 2, because the, the spirits of the saints are under the, the altar of incense, and they cry out to God, how long, O Lord, when are you going to do something about what's going on? But in Revelation, when God decides to act, and in Daniel chapter 7, when God decides to act, whenever God confronts his enemies, there is no contest. God wins. Quickly and easily. What are his reasonings for waiting? Why doesn't he act like when we want him to act? His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. I don't know. But when he decides to act, there is no great battle you hear that? Some of our friends, some of our religious friends think there's going to be a great battle. In the Bible, when God acts against his enemy, there is no great battle. There's just victory. He quickly and easily defeats his foe. And we can certainly appreciate and learn that. So what is this fourth kingdom? If we think about, uh, again, what most people seem to think is that it's Rome. Uh, Some others have said Greece, which would not be too far off timeline-wise. Others perhaps have said uh, some other ones. Certainly, uh, again, some of our uh, premillennial friends would say that this fourth kingdom, uh, this fourth beast represents a kingdom yet to come. Uh, Think about the Antichrist and that sort of thing. That would be what uh, some of our religious friends who would believe in premillennialism would think. Uh, But what, what are the evidence? What's the evidence that it's Rome? Okay, uh, well, Daniel, back in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Remember, remember go back to that, that, that uh, statue, the, the four-part statue. What happens to the statue? Where there's this great rock that comes out of heaven, and it comes down, and it knocks over the statue, and the statue is destroyed, and then that rock becomes this huge rock, okay? And it's going to be this, it, it represents this everlasting kingdom whose dominion is, for, you know, forever wide, forever large, and never ending. Okay, Uh, so in Daniel chapter 2, in verse 44, uh, Daniel told the king Nebuchadnezzar that this everlasting kingdom would be established in the days of the fourth empire. Okay, the fourth empire of the statue. Here we have the fourth empire of these different kind of beasts. In the New Testament, uh, both John the Baptist and Jesus preached that the kingdom of heaven was near or it was at hand. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2 and chapter 4 and verse 17, as well as other places, uh, while, Ro- while, while Rome ruled. So John the Baptist and Jesus preached the kingdom of God is at hand. And they preached that when Rome was ruling, okay, that it was going to be set up, that it was here even is what they said sometimes. After Jesus' resurrection and after his ascension, so after the gospel is fulfilled, the death, burial, and resurrection, uh, the New Testament tells us that Christians have been ushered into the kingdom, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, and that they have received an unshakable kingdom, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. The point being, up until Jesus, there's prophecy, and any time there's talk about the kingdom, it's the kingdom is coming. After Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, after the start of the church, the conversation is the kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming, Jesus comes, he dies, he's resurrected. And the kingdom is here. And now today, you and I are a part of that kingdom. What is that kingdom? What is that eternal, unshakable kingdom who's, uh, who doesn't have any borders? Okay, you think about kingdoms. Think about the Babylonian kingdom. They had borders. Think about the Medes and the Persians. They had borders. They had some parts of the world that did not belong to them. Well, the kingdom of God, the church, has no borders. 
anyone from anywhere in the world, not only through time or through space, but also through time, those before us and those to come after us are a part of this kingdom. Now it is the earthly part of the heavenly kingdom. There will be also another way in which when we get to heaven, we'll fully experience the kingdom, but the church is the kingdom here on earth. And it seems to be the kingdom uh, that Daniel is talking about through these visions. Let's read verses 15 through 28. 15 through 28. All right, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but I want you to, uh, I want to point out some things to you, okay? So this, this, he has this vision, this amazing vision. And then let's notice uh, what, what happens here. It, he, he really could not shake uh, the dread. It says in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the vision in my head kept alarming me. I came near to one of the ones who was standing by and began speaking or seeking out from him the exact meaning of all of this. So he said to me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Okay, so, so Daniel is, uh, is still in this vision. Okay, it's a dream, it seems like, in Daniel chapter 7. Other, dream, other visions he's going to have in later chapters, it seems to be a waking vision. But he says he's dreaming here. So he's dreaming, he's having this vision, but he's able to, he's able to interact with the vision. Okay, now we've all had vi- dreams before, but we've probably never been able to interact with our vision. Okay, here Daniel was able to go and talk to one of these people, these myriads of myriads of people who are standing around the throne of God. And he's, he, notice what he says. The reason he does this is because he's distressed, it's, he's alarmed, and he wants, uh, verse 16, he's seeking from him the exact meaning of all of this. Okay, he wants to know. I don't know what this means. I want to know exactly what this means. And you know what he's told? Exactly what we just talked about. And no more details than that. He's told that the four beasts represents four kingdoms that are going to come up. Uh, and, and really, that's, that's the extent of it. It says uh, there in verse, uh, verse 17, uh, these, this is what the, the, pers- the being uh, that he asked about. He says, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Uh, but the saints of the highest ones will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Okay, notice, notice you know, he says, now I don't know if, if Daniel was told more than what he writes here, but he says, hey, I go to this guy and I say, I want to know exactly what this means. And the guy says, well, these four beasts are four kings, but don't worry about those. Don't be so focused on them. Be focused on the fact that God's people are the one who get this everlasting kingdom. He doesn't really get exactly what this dream is all about. He gets a very broad idea of what this is all about. And then it says in verse 19, then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, extraordinarily fearsome and these types of things. Verse 20, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came about. And I kept looking, verse, 20, verse 21, and that horn, that, that one little horn with the mouth and the eyes was waging war with the saints and overcoming them until the ancient of days came and, and judgment was given in favor of the saints of the highest one of the seasons and the season arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom and thus he said okay so he 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 first of all says hey i want to know what all this means tell me about these these beasts what's it represent and the only answer he's given is that these four beasts represent four kings or four kingdoms and then he says okay well tell me more about this fourth beast because he's different tell me about these horns tell me about this one horn tell give me give me more i want to know i want to know more and you you and i would be in a similar uh idea if we weren't terrified uh you know too afraid to ask anything, uh, we would probably ask similar questions. Verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom, 
on the earth, uh, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it and down and crush it. And the ten horns out of this kingdom will be ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and he will uh, make low three kings. He will speak words against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one and he, and will, he will intend to make char- uh, changes in the seasons and in the law and they will be given into his hand for a time. Okay, so here's another phrase. They will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But then in verse 20, 26, but, okay, so we're given some more details. You know, the, the fourth kingdom is it's still just another kingdom. Uh, has ten, hor- ten, the ten horns represent ten, ten kings of that kingdom. And then the, uh, the eleventh horn, the little horn, the, the one with the loud mouth, he displays, uh, displaces uh, three of the other kings, makes them low, uh, and he makes war with the saints. But we're not told when, where, how, why, what's that look like. We're not told any details. Again, it's, it's accurate, but it's not precise. We're not given all the details that we probably want. Don't you think Daniel wanted to know more than what he's told? Absolutely he did. But he's not told anything else. And if he's not told anything else, then we can't either. But then again, verse 26, maybe here's the greater point. This, this being, angel perhaps, that is speaking with Daniel, says, hey, yeah, there's, there's that fourth kingdom. Here's some details about him. Verse 26, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, alienated and destroyed forever. What's that mean? Heaven will act. God will act. He's in, this vision takes place in the throne room of God. And this, there's, there's some things to be concerned about. There's some things to be aware of. There's some things that are gonna go on but this being, probably an angel we would think, I guess, says, hey, but don't worry. The court will act. God's going to do something. Uh, do we have to know the absolute, with absolute certainty the identity of the beasts, the horns, the little horn, and the meaning of the phrase time, times, and half a time? Do we need to know the literal meaning of any of these things? Can we force our view of the meaning of these things upon others because of our certainty or our lack thereof? Or sometimes it would be easy for us to get caught up in the little details and miss the bigger picture. Uh, The little details that have not been revealed, that have not been made known, and that we therefore cannot know. If God hasn't told us, then we cannot know. What's the big picture? God is in control, and no matter how bad things get, the destiny of every tyrant is God's righteous judgment and fierce fury. One day, every tyrant will get what's coming to him and God will bring it. What does that mean? Uh, what if Tuesday doesn't go so great? What if the, the results that you want isn't what happens? What if over the next decade, those things keep not going your way and things get really bad in America? We'll have an opportunity as Christians to be faithful. Whatever, no matter what happens on Tuesday, we'll have the opportunity as Christians to be faithful to God. You remember that we talked about very early on in the, in the study of Daniel, this idea of loyal subversion, that Daniel and all those who were with him as a part of that, um, that exile, 
uh, Jeremiah told them, hey, you're going to be there for a little while. You need to build houses. You need to get married. You need to have kids. You need to invest in the community that you're in. You need to seek the best of your enemies in Babylon, is what uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah told them when they were there. And we see that happening with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They, they become a part of the world around them in which they live. They are loyal to that world. They, you know, Daniel has these amazing relationships with these pagan kings, these amazing relationships with pagan kings. Daniel has those things because he's loyal to them. He's seeking what's best for them, but he's also subversive. The things that are against God in his culture, the things that are against God in the nation in which he lives, he does everything that he can to change that. And we, you and I, need to do the same thing. I am so thankful to be an American. There's nowhere else in the world I'd rather live. But America has plenty of room for improvement. And I need to do everything that I can to help make that happen. I need to make that happen in my family. I need to make that happen in my neighborhood, in our community, in our state, and in our nation. We need to do everything we can to not do what the world thinks is right, but to try to encourage people to do what God thinks is right. We are loyal to our country. We love our country. We love the people that we're around that we can interact with. But ultimately, we're more loyal to God. Think about it this way. As we think about what's the purpose of Daniel uh, 7 through 12. Again, this is something from uh, Michael Whitworth that I thought was good. Uh, This is my second time talking about football today. Hope you liked the the joke this morning. I enjoyed your faces very much. Uh, Football and faith. Okay, so uh, Michael Whitworth, he's a Dallas Cowboys fan. I know, he's not perfect. Um, And he says uh, that he loves watching Dallas uh, Cowboys football. But of course, those games happen on Sunday and preachers are usually kind of busy on Sunday. Uh, So he can't always watch them. So what he'll do is he'll record them. And then later on, he'll go back and watch the games. Uh, But have you ever tried to do that before? You know, you're not going to be able to watch your favorite team. And and so you record the game so that you can go back and watch it later. Anytime I try, I don't do it anymore. Because anytime that I try and do that, I always hear the score at the end of the game before I'm able to watch it. I always hear my team won, my team lost. I always hear that, that type of thing. Well, Michael is such a big fan of the Dallas Cowboys that even when he accidentally hears or even if he purposefully hears the score, he'll still go watch the game, okay? Now, think about it this way. Uh, if you sit down to watch a game knowing that your team won, okay? If you sit down to watch a game knowing your team won, as you watch it, you won't be bothered when there's a horrible call by the referees, or when your team goes three and out or gives up a big score. Nothing will bother you about the game that doesn't go your way because you'll know the outcome. Well, this chapter and Daniel, the whole book of Daniel, the first six chapters and the last six chapters, nothing in this chapter gives us a detailed roadmap for what lies ahead. Daniel 7, there's a vision, there's some general ideas of some things that will happen. They will happen. But we have no details about what, when, how, or who. Okay, there's nothing in this chapter that gives us a detailed roadmap for what lies ahead. But the symbolism works to inform us of the final outcome. God wins and Jesus reigns. Amen? God wins and Jesus reigns. It was true thousands of years ago in Babylon. And it's true today in America. God wins and Jesus reigns. The only question for us is, what side of that argument are we going to end up on? And that's the challenge for us today, tonight, and every day, is will we live for God and follow him even when we don't understand everything? Or will we try to rely upon our own knowledge, our own wisdom, or the the strength of other things around us? Uh, So tonight, uh, where are you at in your faith? 
yes, I, I would have loved to, and, and you know, Daniel chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 aren't going to be any easier than Daniel chapter 7. So we'll see how much we, we how deeply we go into each of those. Uh, but the point of all of them is, the point of the Bible is, God wins and Jesus reigns. Tonight, whose side are you on? Uh, the way that you choose that side is through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. If you are not a Christian tonight, God died so that you could be, so that you could be on the winning team. And the, the fact is, you don't even have to score the winning score. It's already been done. You already know the outcome. What team are you going to be on? And Christians, remember, let's remember this. We're not in the stands. We're on the field. We're not spectators in this sport. We're not spectators in this life. No, we're on God's team. And we're pushing the ball forward for God's glory. And we're trying to do everything that we can to bring glory to his name and to bring other people onto this winning side that we are a part of. So if you're not doing that and you need prayers about that, if you've got struggles in your life, if you've got things that you're going through, we'd love to help you with that. Uh, Because one day, people are going to heaven. And I want you to go there. And I want the lost to go there. And so do you. So let's do our part to make that happen. If you have any needs tonight, you're invited to come as we stand and sing. Calling for you and for 